All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. everyone to the Christmas special episode of Professionally Embarrassing. We are really excited to be doing something a little different in this episode, which is that we have our very first guest. We have never had a guest on this podcast before, and that was a deliberate decision we made when we started it up because we wanted the commentary to be really organic and unfiltered, and we were worried that if we had a guest on the podcast, we might have to behave and check ourselves and what we're saying. But we've had feedback since season one and lots of people saying, well, why don't you have a guest on? It would be interesting to hear a perspective from someone else. Um, I also read that as we don't want to listen to the two of you talk for hours on end and we want someone else's view. Fair enough. So we decided to land on the wonderful Hannah Markham QC. Hannah has just taken on, I believe, yesterday her new role as chair of the Family Law Bar Association. She is also the chair of Women in Family Law. She's the head of family at 36. She took silk in 2016 and her cases are often widely reported and in the headlines. And she's also part of the president's working group reviewing changes in public law. She does a million different things and almost certainly we're going to be asking her how she juggles all those various commitments. I should also mention, most importantly, the top of the list of all her various accomplishments she's a friend of the podcast because in fact the podcast wouldn't exist without her. Hannah managed to get her husband Luke to edit for us. You've often heard us mention producer Luke. He's the glue that holds everything together and he's the reason professionally embarrassing is even a thing. So without any further ado I'm going to welcome Hannah. Thank you Hannah for joining us. Hello both of you. Thank you very much for asking me to join you. I'm glowing. Hannah I'm going to start off by asking you to introduce yourself to the podcast because no doubt there are things that we would not be able to find out about you on Google um, and I want listeners to hear the backstory to how you got to the bar. Okay so those of you that might know me will know that I was an academic to begin with doing Latin American studies um, which ties into a story that Malvika says I have got to say in a minute and I then found myself pregnant at an early age and decided I might need to review and reflect upon my career path because traipsing around Central America and researching in American libraries perhaps wasn't going to be easiest with a little one. And because I loved legal eagles and other types of legal things, LA Law, you won't remember that, you two, you're far too young. Um, I thought being a lawyer was probably a good way to go. So I went to law school after having been turned down from most of them. I rang up in a bit of a strop and asked them why they turned me down. So looking back, that was probably a good move. And then found myself working um, with the likes of Alison Russell, uh, Jane Hoyle, sitting behind them as a clerk for a small solicitors firm in North London. So learned things, all things family. So there was no other way to go other than being a family barrister. And I was very, very fortunate to find myself a pupil at One Garden Court with Stephen Cobb as my pupil master. So there you are. There's some different things about me. And so, yeah, the story about Central America, I I was learning Spanish living in Costa Rica. So traveled around quite a lot. And because I was there for over three months, I had to leave the country to uh, update my visa. So my friend and I decided to go to Panama and we were staying in Panama City. This was in 1991-92 it was a bit of a dodgy place I think it's better now and we were in our hotel and the hotel got held up by gunpoint it was fairly scary but perhaps the scariest thing was that we were at the very last end of a corridor and so they didn't quite get to us I think it's because alarm had been pulled or the police were coming but everybody thought that we were in on it because we hadn't been robbed So we were, we had to barricade ourselves into the room. Other people were banging on the door. Uh, So we got out through the window and we fled. 
through the night. We hid, first of all, in the cinema, watched Prince of Tides, I think. <laughs> and, then, and then we went to the bus station and waited for the midnight bus out of there. But it was pretty scary, I have to tell you. Wow. As someone hearing that story for the first time, Hannah, that's insane. I have actually a question for you just off the back of all of that, because... I also lived in Spain, learned some Spanish, and I know a lot of people coming to the bar now are lucky to have lots of languages or come from different places. How important do you think it is having that experience, bringing that to the family bar particularly? When you've got a client who doesn't speak your language and is worried and nervous, if you can just turn to them and say something to them in their own language, it changes them completely and also changes the way they engage with you and interact with you. It doesn't mean that you have to be fluent and go in and interpret for them, but also just sometimes knowing that you get them and that you can understand some of their language makes a big difference. I mean, it has helped. I did another crazy case in 2006 when I was representing a local authority to protect children from a Colombian drugs cartel. And we, we ended up doing an emergency protection order to the then Mrs. Justice Polfley over the phone at Barnet Police Station. And the mum was being interpreted and she was not saying the right thing. So in Spanish, I was able to say to the mother, are you happy that she's interpreting you this way? And the mother went, and I went, yes, I speak a bit of Spanish. So it was really interesting. And she'd suddenly realised that I'd been able to hear some of the conversations that she had been having. And I was like, well, don't assume anything. Yeah, I've had a couple of cases. It's becoming increasingly common now with all the chaos that's come off the back of the pandemic where interpreters don't get booked and don't turn up um, and then everything's remote as well so your client really has no idea what's going on and my Tamil is is pretty broken but it is what I speak at home and to be able to say to a client in their own language the interpreter's gone missing which is trying to sort it out that's what's happening on the line right now just little things like that just make them feel like they're actually actively participating in the proceedings rather than sitting there as a passive observer. Yeah and you can catch people out as well interpreting in court you know which does happen actually quite a lot I mean my French is fairly rusty now but even I was able to to tell in a recent case that the interpreter just wasn't getting the gist of what was being said yeah I think there can always be a difficulty there as well because interpreters can't help themselves but try and help clients and they say if, if sort of someone's being particularly abusive or particularly difficult they sort of tend to tone down the language and actually what you need in a situation like that is a very clear interpretation of what's happening um so even having some understanding of any other language I always think is a real a real assistance. Maddie and I do a lot of work around aspiring barristers and people who want to come to the bar and they are asking us what it's like at the bar and we've done sessions for them and one of the questions we get quite frequently is non-law degree or law degree as someone who came in as a non-lawyer would you go back and recommend that people do a non-law degree that it brings a separate perspective do you think there's no difference at all I really recommend non-law degree but then maybe I would because that's the only route I know I think it does bring a different perspective I also think particularly going into family law being a bit older with more experience under your belt of life helps you so when we just talk about doing languages imagine doing a language degree then your conversion you've got an added experience there an added sort of string to your bow and also, I think a lot of my friends did law at uni and then never went on to practice. So I think that's probably why I say that route. But I'm sure there are lots of people out there that did the strict law route and say, no, I think that's the right way to do it. But my preference is do something different. And I, my dad said to me when I went off to uni, do something that you're going to really enjoy and that's going to be fun for your degree. And I think that's the best advice. And you can always convert, can't you, afterwards? I mean, I know there's a financial issue, so it's not always open for people. It's, it's financially better for some people to do a law degree because it, it saves that cost. But if you're able to, I'd say do something different first. Yeah, I must admit the only piece of advice that I give at pupillage or, or kind of qualifying session stuff that I do is I did pupillage at 22 and I think it was a mistake. If I could go back and do it differently, that's what I would change is that I had no other. I did law at Cambridge and then went to the bar, which isn't exactly rich in experience and life's rich tapestry. But I think it's something that people really need to consider, especially if you're doing something like family or crime or discrimination or employment or something like that. Something about real life. Having experience is so, so important and you can't underplay the value of that. 
Um, and you see it in all the expertise that we see across the family bar that so many QCs who are so eminent have such different routes to being where they are. So I think that's not to be sniffed at, certainly. One of the questions that I had for you was, perhaps you just mentioned it with your dad and, and advice you've been given, but what, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given that kind of sticks with you professionally or personally? I think personally was my advice from my dad. Professionally was probably from Joe Delahunty and she was got quite frustrated with it at one point. And she said, you know, Markham, there comes a time when you've got to stop supporting other people and look to yourself and say, hang on a minute, I can do this and find time for yourself to make the applications and be prepared to take that time and focus on yourself and direct all of that wonderful attention and support and accolade that you give to someone else and direct it to yourself so that you can make the best application. Was that in relation to taking silk particularly, would you say? Yeah. I mean, at that time it was about taking silk, but it has been generally. She's had a go at me several times over the years <laughs> in the nicest possible way. Yes. Shout out to other friend of the show, Joe Delahunty, who we also yeah. know and very much respect in the same way. Do you feel that over the course of your career up until that point, you did tend to direct your energy towards other people's successes and didn't really prioritise yourself and didn't back yourself as much as you wish you had? Yeah, and I think I probably still do that a bit, which I know sounds weird when I stand back and look at what I've achieved. I think most of us in the profession find it easier, particularly female members of the profession, find it better to direct our support to other people. And it's that that imposter syndrome plus not fear of failure. I don't mind failing. And that's that's a different thing. I think there are people that worry about failing. My daughter, I hope she won't mind me saying, and that she worries about failing. I don't mind. And I think because I've not had a straight run of things, I failed things along the way. I don't mind. And I almost expect not to hit the nail on the head the first time, you know, like applying to be a deputy high court judge. I don't mind saying I didn't get that. You know, when I applied, I will try again. But it's the ability to direct all of that wonderful support and nurturing and the way that you can highlight somebody else's achievements and turn it in on yourself which you have to do for silk you have to do for applications to sit you have to be able to say I'm excellent at this I'm great at this I do this in an excellent way I'm a truly excellent advocate I achieve wonderfully look at how fabulous I am and that's really alien to me I don't know why, and I don't think I'm alone, but it, that's an alien concept. Men seem to be really good at doing that. They just go, yes, well, absolutely wonderful about this, you know, and I can do that in a second. And for some reason, whilst we might be really good and excellent and fabulous at that, women just don't know how to sell themselves. And I think we really need to learn that skill. What was it like starting out? You know, you were called to the bar at the end of the 90s. What was it like starting out at the bar as a young woman what advice would you give to a young woman starting out at the bar what would you have done if you could go back turn the clock back what would you have done differently I don't know if I would have done anything differently I have to say because what I've done has set me on the route that I'm on and I wouldn't necessarily want to go back and change that I've met wonderful people and I've achieved wonderful things along the way I perhaps would have spent a little more time with my babies when they were little. Henry was two weeks old when I drove up to Lincoln to apply to discharge a care order for a young mum whose two children had been removed from her care because we had radiological report from Studley to say that he agreed that mum's account was probably right, that the nine-month-old baby had slipped to the bath. And I wanted those kids home. And looking back, other people could have done that. I didn't need to be there. I didn't need to have done that drive and taken my little baby up there. So I think I would have done things like that slightly differently. But in terms of my actual career choices and progression, I don't think I would have done anything differently. I think one of the worries we have as junior barristers, anytime we get an email from our clerk saying there's this urgent case, anyone able to pick it up, please, is if we say no, then maybe that big case, that big case that's really going to make a difference just slips through our clutches. Do you think that that's a fair concern? Is it really the case that if we decline work from our clerks because we say, you know what, 
I actually have a really important birthday party that I need to get to tonight, or my partner has uh, an important commitment that I absolutely need to be there for, or my mum wants me to spend the day with her. Do you think that it's a paranoia that that's actually going to affect our careers in any meaningful way? Or is that actually a thing? It better not be a thing. Otherwise, we've really got to do something about it. It's our paranoia, I think. Of course, it is an absolute fact that there will be that one case that you say, sorry, it's my birthday, or sorry, I've got a headache, or I'm just tired and I don't want to do it. And that case turns into a Supreme Court case. But you don't see those cases coming. You know, the cases that become Supreme Court cases or Court of Appeal cases often start off as the most mundane of cases. So you don't appreciate right at the beginning when you've said no to it. It's only months later. And then what can you do about it? And as to the second part to the question, we joke, but it really should not be a thing. You should not be penalised for saying to your clerk or saying to yourself, I do need some time. This is important. And next year, it's going to be absolutely vital, and I use the word vital, that we at the bar and other people at the fam- who practice in family law do start to take more care of themselves because we haven't been very good at it over the pandemic because we all thought, and we were quite right, that we needed to step up. We knew that there were problems in the family justice system. We know there is a crisis in the courts being able to accommodate all the cases. And it is right that if we do take our foot off the pedal a bit, then there's going to have to be a reshaping and a reframing of how cases are heard. But we actually do need to make sure that we do say no. And actually, it's more important that the junior end say no, because you're our future and we don't want to lose you. We don't want to hear that Madeline has retired from being a barrister because she was burnt out and she's gone off to be a librarian. Sorry, Maddie, I'm just picking a profession. We want Maddie and the Malvikas of the world to stand firm and grow and measure your pace so that in over the next five years, you can start to pick up those more complex cases and you can start to mentor those that come behind you and give them the same wisdom and what you have learned. Because if you burn out now, we're not going to retain you. And that will be the biggest loss. So I think really important that if junior members, whether they're male or female, we're talking about females because we are three females talking but it happens to young men as much if you feel that you are being punished because you're not saying yes to every case you need to flag it with somebody trusted senior in your chambers because it's not right and clerks have got to learn that as important as pleasing those solicitors is making sure your members are okay because a chambers is no good if your members are tired sloppy because you're tired and just unable to shine in the way that you all shine and we all shine when we need to. It's no good. I want to pick up on a couple of those themes, Hannah, not to get too philosophical or put the woes of the bar on your shoulders. <laughs> it's not at all my intention, but I think there's a there's definitely a feeling in terms of well-being and burnout and, and mental health that we're really understanding more in the last few years, at least since I've been at the bar. And a lot of that is to do with Malvika and her work as well. But generally as a woman at the bar as someone who or someone with a uterus at the bar who wants to have their own children for example do you think that there are still structural barriers to being able to achieve as much in as much time as men or people who don't have caring commitments and caring responsibilities in the way that there used to be by structural do you mean within the format and framework of application processes or within the chambers I suppose both. I mean, within chambers, obviously, if you were to take, for example, you know, you say you would have liked to have spent more time with your children. I think that must be an issue related to the way in which you work and the way in which the bar makes women work. If you take a year out, you're missing out on relationships with solicitors ostensibly and you're missing out on cases that could have come in your diary and those could have been the Supreme Court cases and so on. So that's an issue. And I think the second issue is definitely in terms of silk applications, you know, the time limit with which people assume that you should be doing silk applications. Have you had the requisite experience? Have you kind of missed the mark as you get more senior? So I think there's an element of that, which is biologically imperative. If you are someone who wishes to have your own children, it can delay that process and cause therefore disadvantaged people. I think we have to recognise that the bar is a tough profession because it expects us to 
work at unconventional times in a day, if we get our papers at four or five o'clock at night, then that means if you're a mum or a dad or a parent, you have to deal with your children, sort them out, get them into bed, and then go back to your desk and work to do the, the work that you need to do to prepare for the next day. We also have to recognize that have wig will travel. We can get sent all around the country, which takes us away from being able to do the school run to go and pick up at the end of the day. But it doesn't mean that you can't be an effective parent. And I would like to think I've been an effective parent. I've spent many times, as I know many of my friends who are parents are, running to places to get to things, running to get to trains, to get the one that gets me in so I can get to school or I can do this. But I don't think that it's a profession that means you can't be a parent. And actually, there are many positives about the profession that fit in with being a parent. So we are self-employed. You can manage your own diary. You can look ahead and say, it's little Tommy's nativity play. And therefore, I don't want to be in court in the afternoon. And that's a luxury that isn't open to a lot of people who are employed. You can say, for example, I'm coming back from maternity leave. I'd like to come back part time, please. And you can manage your diary that way. And the majority of women who I know who have been bold enough and sufficiently secure in themselves to manage their diaries in that way have also progressed and are judges and have taken silk. So I don't think it is a negative impact. It is more demanding because of the nature of being a barrister is a demanding profession, not only intellectually, but at the family bar, the degree of energy we give to our clients to hold our clients is something that I think is overlooked by other people in the profession. And that has inroads into how much energy you have for your family members. But I firmly believe that it is a good profession for women who want to have children or men who want to be parents. You just have to be strong at dictating your own pace and your own future and know that actually the work is out there the cases will still come your way and the right time will become obvious to you if and when you want to apply. What do you think Chambers and the bar more broadly need to be doing to make that clear to their members that you, if you want to have children, you will have that support in place. This is what we would be able to offer you if you wanted to take some time off to care for your children who've just been born. This is how we'd accommodate your various caring commitments. What is it that Chambers can do to make clear that parents are welcome at the bar? I think there's a, almost a two-pronged approach to that. I think we have to educate the clerks because I love my clerks. I've got a fantastic clerks room. But I'm sure that were I actually to drill down, there are still some more junior members of my team that would say, sometimes I feel like Sometimes it appears to me like they don't listen or understand. And so I think our clerks need to be educated. I think they need to know that we work together and not in opposition and that they need to be able to support us and that they can't get sniffy if we say, I'm sorry, but for the next three months, I'm only going to work three days a week. You know, Work with us over it, please. Help us manage things. Tell us even if I'm not working on a Friday for the next three months, if there's an important marketing event that you would like me to come to, and I will make arrangements to come, don't assume just because I can't work ordinarily on a Friday, I won't come. And then at the other side, we need people like me, people, other people, men and women who have balanced and juggled and achieved to speak to junior members and new parents to help them you know, not like mentoring or a shoulder to cry on type of thing, you know, understand it's going to be hard, but understand that there are people out there that you can talk to. I mean, retention at the bar that fits into that is a wider subject, isn't it? Because you've got to look at so many other things, the whole well-being crisis, mental health issues, how the bar protects and supports. So being a parent is part of that wider 
problem. I think it is a problem actually at the bar at the moment that we need to change and we need to think how our systems are changed. But for me, on a basic level, in your own set of chambers, it's clerking and it's support and nurture from those that are doing it or have done it. I don't know if you guys agree. You might not. I certainly do. I mean, we're going to talk about this more later because it's one of the things I want to recommend people listen to at the end of this. But I'm sure you're aware the Bar Council have just brought out a very comprehensive handbook about equality, diversity and inclusion at the Bar, which is a fantastic piece of work done by lots of different barristers in lots of different practice areas. And one of the groups involved in that was career breaks and policies and sort of what we can do. And I think one of the main things you said that I really agree with is marketing, because a huge amount of people assume that if you're off with your child or with a caring responsibility or with a mental health break or a physical health break, that you don't want to ever be involved in anything to do with work. And actually, as barristers, those are two different things. Having clients and having that emotional responsibility is one thing, but actually marketing yourself and your abilities is is something slightly different and requires a different face. So assuming that people don't want to be marketed while they're away, I think has been a problem that I've seen at the bar. And I certainly think, you know, much like pupillage, like you say, that's how barristers learn is by learning from each other. You've been doing this longer than us. You have much more ability to juggle and balance than we would or, or our peers would because we've not done it yet. So I think that's yeah, I think it's really, really important. I certainly agree with that. And I think having firm policies as well from chambers, what can I expect? Write down in a document if I take three months off for whatever reason, I want to know that you're going to remember me when I come back and that you've got a responsibility to me as much as I've got a responsibility to you to be a good barrister when I get back one of the things my chambers did that I was so pleased about it made me really proud to be part of chambers is in recent months they sent a survey around all the members saying um, here are a list of questions saying how many days ideally do you want to be in court what kind of work ideally do you want to do what kind of notice do you need or what kind of preparation do you need how many prep days do you think you need for different kinds of case and I think by asking the question at all is acknowledging that different people will have different working patterns and will be able to manage their diaries in different ways, rather than starting from the assumption that everyone is going to want to be in court five days a week, working at the weekends, working at the evenings, and will take on everything that can be offered to them. So I think that's a really good idea to start by asking your members the question, ask them how much they are actually able to take on and what it is that they need, rather than assuming that we're superhuman and that we can work all week, be in court all week, then come home, have lunch, have dinner, and then carry on so that you never actually have any free time at all. If you don't set people up to fail and actually work with them, then you're going to get more productivity, aren't you? And you're going to have happier people. And happier people give better service if we think about being in the service industry, which you're going to get support from your clerks because it's that nice circle isn't it oh brilliant you know Hannah's doing really well on her three days a week she's I'm getting fantastic learning report she's very well prepared the attendance notes are coming back on time rather than uh Han where's that note uh Han can you do that advice because there's no time to do it and then it all slips doesn't it so I think understanding that gaps in diaries are really important is something the clerks need to learn sometimes I think that segues quite nicely into the questions that we've been asked to ask you on behalf of some other people two of which were almost exactly the same and simply said how on earth do you manage it all because we've just read out a long list of all the things that you're currently doing in your free time plus you're doing things like this to help us and you're doing your own enormously high and demanding caseload so any tips and tricks to try and stay on top of everything or are you just crying in bed every single day wondering how you're possibly going to manage when Luke's listening to this to do the editing he will say it's because she's a workaholic and we never see her. I'm now in, in the room that was the children's playroom. Then it became Henry's study for his A-levels. And of course, they didn't happen. And then I made it my courtroom because my office is at the front of the house and nobody can see in. And it's the messiest place on the planet. Cyrus Larizadi takes great pleasure of sharing the picture I, he once got hold of of that room. So I would never actually advocate that anybody does exactly what I do. I don't think it's healthy all the time. And I've got to learn to say no. My dad, particularly in the last six months, has been saying, please slow down. Please make different choices. I do it because I don't like to let people down. And I do it because I enjoy enjoy my job. I'm really, really lucky. I really enjoy my job. And I feel for people and I 
want to give them the support that they need. And the more complicated the case is, the more support both your solicitor clients and your client clients need. And I don't want to be one of those barristers who just comes in and has a conference and walks away again or does the hearing. I want to be there for before the hearing and after the hearing. So I do that because I think people need that support. I then do the other extracurricular activities because I'm really passionate about the young people and this profession. And I'm really passionate about changing it and making it a more welcoming, nurturing, supportive profession. And whilst I have the energy, I'm going to direct my energy into support and change. Uh, There will come a time when I can't keep doing it and I need to change my time and my focus. I can do it now. I'm finding I hit 50 this year. I am finding my energy level slightly abating as I get older. But I do it because I'm passionate and I really want our profession to be better than it is, to be more inclusive. Inclusivity was a word that I learned from my daughter, who's 26, and teaches me a lot. And I've thought long and hard about that word because we have equality, we have diversity, but inclusivity I think is the most important word and it's something the bar needs to learn and properly understand. I've gone off how I do it and why I do it probably because I don't like talking about myself but I don't know does that give a bit of a flavour? Yeah absolutely from from my perspective yeah I think I've asked a couple of people that question you know eminent silks people I respect and admire at the bar and they've all just said you've got to love it you just got to want to do it and you've got to love it and I think speaking personally about the family bar it's I say this to students as well it's not something you do because you want to be a noble barrister who wears a wig and trots around central London you know that's not why we do this you've got to love it and you've got to want to do it well and yeah that just means that we carry on doing it all the time to make you laugh during the covid crisis when I was having to juggle all of these extra meetings with Cyrus there were quite a few times when I wanted to do my yoga class and do the meetings So I would be having the meeting on with a camera off, doing my yoga down here. And then when I had to speak, I'd like pause the yoga and come up and talk. So, you know, there is a ridiculous juggling that goes on sometimes in the Hannah Markham world. You talked a little bit about, you know, when Luke listens to this on the edit, he's he's probably going to say we never see Hannah at all. I mean, how does it impact upon your personal life? Because I'm only two years in. And full disclosure, I'm on holiday at the moment, or ostensibly I'm on holiday at the moment. I'm in Brighton with my boyfriend who's taken himself off for a little wander while we record this. And I was up very early this morning while he was still asleep, finishing off some bits and pieces for a trial I start next week. I don't have any dependence apart from him. And I feel like I can get away with it a little bit because I am single and young and don't really have any responsibilities. And if I want to be working ridiculous hour days, then I can. But at a certain point, it is probably going to start taking a toll on my personal life. How do you manage that? How do you manage the the guilt? Don't have guilt. It is a non-motion. It gets you nowhere. And once you start to feel guilty, you're taking yourself down a rabbit hole you don't need to go to. If you feel guilty, then you need to change something. You need to adjust something so the guilt can go away. I mean, I had a call with a friend of mine only yesterday who said, I'm not doing anything good anymore. You know, well, then then shift it, you know, shift it so that something has to give. And that will be work because your relationship with your children and your partners must be the priority. So shift in work. Don't say you can do that extra seminar. Don't say you can do that extra case. Say to your clerks, I've done the last six marketing events. I'm going to not attend this one because you just need to be at home on the sofa with your boyfriend or your husband, or you need to be with your children. So they don't always have to be big things, but you just tweak something at that point in time. Just readdress the balance. There will be another time when, so for me, neither my kids are at home anymore. They're both out. So I don't have that pressure. If Luke's doing a podcast edit for these mad women that he'll, you know, what else am I going to do? I'll sit and work. You know, I I listen in though. So I'm here and I go, what are they saying, Luke? What's Maddie talking about now? But you just have to watch what's going on all times and just tweak it. And Ben will understand sometimes that you need to be doing something about work that's important to you. This podcast is important to you. It also is something you enjoy doing. So he's quite happy to go off and do the walk. 
But if you were to, if he were to come back and you said, oh, by the way, Ben, when you were out, I took a call from my clerk who asked me to do an emergency hearing over the phone. So I'm also doing that now. Then you go, what? Why did you do that? So that's that's the balance, isn't it? Ben's my boyfriend for anyone who doesn't know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh no, don't worry about it. He'd love he'd love being name checked in the podcast. Yeah. So I mean, I get that. It's I suppose it's easier said than done, isn't it? Because there's always this push and pull between. I so desperately want to accomplish what I want to accomplish professionally, but I also want to accomplish what I want to accomplish personally. And it's all part of this myth that we're fed as women that we can do it all and that we should do it all. And actually, maybe we don't want to do it all. And maybe doing it all isn't that attractive a prospect. Yeah. And I think that's the point of saying no, isn't it, sometimes? Because you make your decision. It's also an equally valid decision if you were to be in a relationship and you're doing what you want to do in your career and your partner says, I'm feeling this isn't working for me. And for you to say, well, actually, my career at the moment is really important. That's a valid choice as well. We don't always have to pick the relationship or the time with people we love. If they love us, they will understand that at a particular point, our career and a decision we make is going to be important. But you're right. I think I don't think that expression having it all is helpful. Because it makes it feel like you've got to be juggling all these balls all the time. And if you don't do it, and if you don't manage all of these exceptional different roles and responsibilities, you're failing. Whereas actually all you're doing is at different points on your life and trajectory, you are prioritizing one thing over something else. And that will change all the way through, just like being on maternity leave. At that point in time, you're taking time out of your career because you've got a baby at home that you want to be with and need to some women want to take a whole year. Some women are not in a financial position to do that. Some men want to take time and share the year with their. We all do different things, but I think it's wrong to think about it in terms of having it all. That's unhelpful. Yes, and it's a myth perpetuated only on women, I find as well, that no one ever expects or says to men, oh, how do you do it all? You know, it just has misogynistic undertones in my view. Anyway, pivoting very briefly, because I'm aware we've been at this for 45 minutes, Hannah, and we want to give you a break, but... Moving slightly then, just because we know we get lots of student listeners and we get lots of aspiring barristers, in your mind, what do you think makes an excellent barrister? What makes a barrister stand out amongst their peers? You asked me to think about a family law barrister as opposed to any other barrister. Yes, I think specifically in this context, family law, certainly, and I'm not expecting you to know, and I certainly wouldn't be interested to know what makes a good tax barrister. So you let us know what makes a great family barrister, please. In my humble opinion, tenacity empathy, patience, attention to detail, a warm approach, an appreciation of black humour, ability to work under pressure, and ability to be mindful of people around you at given points of time, be that your client, somebody on the way to work, because that can disrupt everything that goes on if you have a bad journey, and we know that as barristers, or be mindful of the court clerks when you go in. Be mindful of the judge about what might be happening in their lives. So that those were the sort of the thoughts I had. And, and I, when I'm in black humour, I mean dark humour, insensitive humour. What would you say to a young junior barrister who has aspirations to be where you are? Because you are at the pinnacle of your career. You are the creme de la creme of the family bar. How is it that one becomes the creme de la creme of the family bar? Because it's interesting looking at the stats, how... Women are overrepresented in law degrees. Women are overrepresented when it comes into coming into the bar. There's a far greater proportion of women who finish law degrees than men. And there seems to be relative parity at the early stages of everyone's career. But the real drop off seems to be those senior positions, seems to be silk, the judicial appointments. What is it that women in particular, young women barristers should be doing to get to where you are? I think we've already talked about some of it. You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to have the confidence that you can achieve it and that you are ready to make the application. And you've got to put that imposter syndrome in a box and tie it up with a ribbon and pop it in the bottom of your wardrobe or in a drawer. It'll come out every now and again when you feel a bit fragile. You need to take it out and stroke it and then you can put it back into the box. Because if you think about women who are silks or judges, you are leading you're being confident, you're making confident decisions. You then have other jobs or roles 
that you will slot into because of what you have achieved. And in each of those, to be a good role model, you've got to believe in yourself. There's no point going out there and being weak or lily-livered about something. You, you've got to be able to say, this is achievable. I am not one of those really academic barristers. I didn't have brilliant A-level results. I didn't go to a fantastic university. And I have to stop myself from thinking I'm not as clever as that other person, because what is intelligence and what does that mean? So if you are starting off, you start off by looking up and thinking, one day I'd like to be a court of appeal judge. That's where I want to be. And I'm going to get there. Not, oh, I don't know. I don't know where I'll be. And maybe I'll just be one of those barristers in 20 years time that is just sort of still around the magistrate's court. I mean, that's so unhelpful. So look up and think, where do I want to be? How do I get there? Who do I need to talk to along the way to make sure I'm hitting the right targets at the right time? And you also have to know that it's not always about doing those really big cases. You are lucky if you get them. I've been really fortunate and I've been in the right place at the right time for some cases. But it's actually about the quantity, quality and steady hand of your cases as you go through the bar. It's about becoming really good at what you do. And sometimes the devil in the detail, being really good at maybe a complex medical case or really good at fact-finding hearings. And you get known then for having that skill and the expertise. I also have recognized through my time that really nice people achieve, people who are kind to one another, who aren't rude or arrogant. We are assessed by our peers when we get to a certain level whether or not it is junior members or senior members, we are assessed by our peers. And if you're arrogant and rude and careless with other people's emotions, that's going to get noticed. And people don't like people like that. So I think believe in yourself and be kind to other people along the way. And I I think if you hold on to those virtues, you will do well. As a side point, yeah, I appreciate and acknowledge It will help if you become committee members of certain associations, if you can write some articles along the way. But that's the window dressing, isn't it? And they're the extra bits you put on your forms. But you've got to be a really good barrister and a good person in order then to become a leader in your profession. I think that's a really positive, uplifting and straightforward way to end that segment of the podcast, because I think we do get a bit fixated on all the various brownie points we can rack up to try and endear ourselves to the various panels and committees we will eventually apply for. And actually, it's just a question of getting back to basics. Don't be a, do we swear on the podcast? Don't be a D-I-C-K. Anyway. I think I've said it before. I think we're all right. <laughs> we're all right. Just don't, don't be someone that people don't want to be around because they always say to pupillage, don't they, that the, the applicants that they tend to select are the, the people that the panel would want to go to the pub and have a drink with after the interview. And I think that's very true. Yeah. Thank you so, so much, Hannah. That was amazing. And I'm so, so grateful for your time and coming on with us today and I hope everyone listening enjoyed it and got as much from it as I know that we did. I want to move on briefly to one of our segments which you may be familiar with Hannah which is book talk and podcast recommendations and I'm going to start with Malvika see what she's got for us this week. I've got two one is self-serving one is not the self-serving one is that my book comes out next week and this is something I've mentioned on the podcast before uh, on the episode I think it was episode two of this season where we were talking about practice direction 12j so my book a practical guide to practice direction 12j and domestic abuse in private law children proceedings a very catchy very pithy title is out on the 15th of December it's already available for pre-order so if you google it it should be up on the law brief publishing website There is also a discount code, which I will put into the show notes for friends of the podcast. You'll get 10% off the book, but it's mainly aimed at junior barristers, junior solicitors, anyone at the beginning of their profession who wants to make sure that when they have a case where domestic abuse is an issue, that they are dealing with the allegations as robustly, as fairly and as sensitively as they possibly can. Practice Direction 12J is the framework within which we deal with allegations of domestic abuse. And the sad reality is that its application is pretty patchy. I think that we can all agree that 
lots of people refer to practice direction 12j in passing in cases but don't necessarily know all the tools that it offers to practitioners that can assist them with making sure that they are representing their clients to the best of their abilities so if you are inclined to buy my book please do so i would very much appreciate it i don't get very much in royalties, so i promise it's not a get rich quick project i genuinely just want to try and help in my little sphere of influence but my second less self-serving recommendation is a book called Playing Nice, which is a thriller recommended to me by Tash Miller at Harcourt Chambers, who also has a fantastic bookstagram called At Girls Who Read Around, which I would also recommend. And I put out a call on our Instagram at Prof Embarrassing to ask for recommendations for books that have some sort of family law angle. And I thought this was some sort of drama and the basic central tenet of it is that two families end up having their baby switched at birth when both children are two years old they find out about each other and then there's a question about whether or not they continue to raise the child that they've always raised or whether they should return them to their original birth family and then there are family proceedings that get issued off the back of that which it looks like the author has sought the advice of someone with experience in family law because there's lots of references to the appropriate forms the book, actually, it's quite interesting because obviously we see family proceedings from our perspective, but the book looks at the family proceedings from the family's perspective and it looks at them going through the safeguarding interview. It doesn't show Kafkas in a particularly flattering light, I have to admit, because the Kafkas officer asks one of the parents, well, why should the child live with you rather than with your partner? And she says, well, actually, that's not what the case is about at all. It's about two sets of families with two different babies and they need to be swapped back. And it kind of gives the impression that Kafkas hadn't really prepared and they hadn't really really had any clue what this case was about. Of course, we've talked about how overworked Kafkas and social workers are before. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that probably is the experience of some parents, but there is some very good social work going on out there, which we will come to later. But I started off thinking it's just going to be this drama about that. It then goes completely bonkers because actually it's a thriller. So there are lots of nefarious personalities who are doing lots of things they shouldn't be doing. It has an absolutely mad ending and it's real fun to read through. It's quite anxiety inducing because you just watch these parents going through these extremely stressful family proceedings. And I actually think that's quite helpful for a family lawyer to read because sometimes we become really detached from what it is from what, what it's like for our clients to have to go through all of this. And it's very easy because we go into court day in, day out. But for them, it's the most stressful thing that they're ever going to go through in their life. So I would definitely recommend that. Thank you to Tash Miller for that recommendation. What about you, Hannah? I was actually going to say your book, but you've stolen my thunder. I thought I was going to be really clever. And then I thought I was going to be really silly and say the coronavirus regulations for attending court through HMCTS is a must read for any barrister as we go into plan B of the government's plan. But that would be boring. So I then thought, I'm going to be really old fashioned. And I, I just skipped the read. Well, I got your book. So I then skipped the book reading. And I thought about a film that I would recommend with a legal slant. I've already mentioned it. Legal Eagles. Now, you don't know me very, very well, but you both know me a little bit. I just love the 80s films, you know. So Legal Eagles is a film with Robert Redford uh, when he was still quite dreamy and Deborah Winger. And the reason I particularly love that film is because Deborah Winger is just not afraid of not being glamorous. And, you know, there are particular times when she's trying to manage her caseload and she can't sleep at night. So she gets up and she does the hoovering or does the ironing, or she is in bed with the biggest cold trying to finish a brief and she's in bed surrounded by tissues and in the most unglam way. And it's just a lovely, silly film. I mean, it's a, it's about a murder investigation and Daryl Hannah's in it. And it's probably aged really badly. But if you are feeling miserable and you've got a cold or flu and you just want to lie on the sofa and watch something that's not about domestic abuse or anything horrible that we have to do with sometimes, just watch Legal Eagles. It'll make you laugh. And it's nice to see Robert Redford looking dreamy. I think he's always looked dreamy. Yesterday, today, tomorrow. Thank you, Hannah. I think that's really nice, like a little treat for Christmas because this is our last episode before Christmas. So I think that's a good way for people to spend their break. Mine is, because I haven't banged my non-traditional family models drum in a while, is a podcast called The Intended Parent Podcast. And it's about two women. And if you don't like podcasts where women talk, you're probably not going to be here anyway. So if you've got this far, you probably do like them. And it's two women, both of whom had 
fairly devastating cancer diagnoses that left them both unable to conceive their own children and their journeys through surrogacy. Um, and it's really talking about empathy and all the things that we've talked about with Hannah this morning, particularly about having children and the impact that that takes. I think it's important to get the other side of that, you know, what happens when that journey does go wrong and what happens when you're not able to achieve what you thought you were going to achieve. In the words of Sex and the City, the key to having it all is stop expecting it to look like what you thought it was going to look like. But yes, it's a fantastic podcast. It's about journey through surrogacy, how to achieve what you always wanted to achieve in a slightly different way. And I think it has broader themes beyond surrogacy and non-traditional family models. But I also think it really is a very empathetic and unique insight into journeys that women have to go through in order to conceive children that they desperately want. So I'd really recommend that. And I also want to just quickly mention, I know I've said it before, but the Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity Initiative came out this week. It is the lifeblood and work of so many barristers who participated in the Bar Council Leadership Programme last summer, which I was a facilitator on and which was an absolute privilege, joy and honestly the honour of my career to have done with Bree Stevens Hall and various other people at the Bar Council and Deeds and Words. And the outcome is a 79 page document about every possible aspect of equality, diversity and inclusion that we can think of, including neurodiversity and um, fair allocation of work, LGBTQI plus um, race and religion, social mobility, caring responsibilities, bullying, anything you can think of. If you want to know what the bar is thinking about those things, please, please, please read it. And huge shout out to all the barristers for that and their work involved, because I can't imagine that it was anything other than an enormous and very demanding project. So thank you for that. Can I also echo and shout out the Bar Council's Race Working Group report that they launched on the 5th of November? I don't know if you talked about that before, but that is a must read as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's some amazing resources being put out. And I, we get this question a lot, me and Malcolm from students and junior barristers, what's the bar doing about X, Y, Z? We're actually doing quite a lot. If you look for the resources, you will find them. And there's loads of things on Twitter about all kinds of different um, breakout groups about various different aspects of equality, diversity, race, neurodiversity, all of that. So if you look for it, you will find good people doing good work and it's all really, really helpful and we're all very appreciative of it. So thank you. Malvika, tweet of the week. Do you have anything for us? Oh, tweet of the three weeks. <laughs> Do you have anything for us? Yeah, I had one tweet that I absolutely loved, so I wanted to mention, but it's not going to give rise to any discussion at all. It's just to give everyone a giggle. And it's by at David Muttering, David QC. And what he said is, I'm about to ask a very stupid question. Can someone with some Photoshop skills make my profile photo Christmassy? I'm going to regret this. And he posted a picture of himself, what looks like outside the RCJ or some court, in his wig, in his full getup. And the wonderful people of Twitter went absolutely mad and Photoshopped him into all sorts of things. They Photoshopped him into the Blair's Christmas card. They Photoshopped him into a kind of elf costume they photoshopped him into a kind of nra pro-gun family christmas photo it's amazing if anyone wants to have a little laugh because they're having a tough day please go check out that tweet wonderful idea wish i'd thought about it my serious tweet though is from julie wilkes at julie jw 52 and it says it doesn't help the bad press that social work gets that we will never be allowed to publish stories of the best work we ever did however heavily disguised. Is there really no way round this? Not entirely sure what she's referring to, but I imagine it's off the back of the horrifying headlines around Arthur Labinjo Hughes's death. Anyone who has read those sentencing remarks, anyone who's read the coverage around it, I'm sure has found it incredibly distressing. And our hearts go out to his family who have had to go through the trauma of these proceedings and having to read what happened to him. And as is inevitable, whenever a child is injured or killed in this way, questions, very serious questions are asked about what did the authorities do? What did they miss? Was there an opportunity for them to intervene earlier that they didn't take up? And inevitably, those questions would need to be answered. But I thought this was an interesting tweet because social work is like family law more broadly in many respects, because we only really ever hear about it when things go terribly wrong. Those cases that are reported are the cases where something has happened, a local authority hasn't done what they were supposed to do, a judge came to the wrong decision and so has been appealed. And actually we do so much, part of the reason why all three of us do this work is because it's so gratifying because we have the opportunity to help people at the most distressing times of their lives move on 
or to at least come up with some sort of solution that everyone can live with if they're not necessarily happy with. The work we do is very important and can be have such positive outcomes but obviously we're not able to talk about that we're not able to tell anyone about that and general public general joe blogs only ever hears about the things that go wrong and i think that's the same for social work i know some fantastic social workers who do some brilliant social work they don't go into the job to remove children from their families they go into the job because they want the best outcomes for children but realistically we will never know about any of that what do you think i have been astounded over my career by how many amazing diligent kind compassionate social workers that I have met along the way and they far outweigh those that perhaps are careless in the job they do or are closed-minded because they do exist just as they do in every single profession and I have learned that it is important to listen to your social worker they have very good instinctive reactions they do listen and do try I agree that it is really disappointing that we can't highlight some of the very very important and exceptional work that some social workers do for children around our country even if it is when they are removing children from their parents because the children need protecting or if it's because they have worked tirelessly to try to keep families together, to try to give people and parents the support that they need. In all professions, people are going to get it wrong sometimes. I get it wrong. Judges get it wrong. But I, I feel for social workers. And if we have more and more people denigrating them on Twitter or you know, abusing people or trolling people, then people aren't going to want to be social workers and we're going to lose some really good people who could go into that profession. You know, it it is a vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah, I want to make it clear about this as well. I mean, not to get too political, but mine and Malvika's politics aren't really a a hidden agenda at this point, but social workers work in a system that is chronically and intentionally been absolutely stripped to the bone and they are working within a system that is so hostile to the work that they do because we are working under a government that does not care about children and elderly people and social care and social welfare and safety nets and they are working in a system that's chronically underfunded and treated like an afterthought when looking at budgets for anything they are always last they have been slashed in funding and resources for years and years and years and a lot of social workers don't come or aren't born in Britain we rely heavily on immigrant and migrant populations for social workers and they do an amazing job a lot of the time and it makes me so angry that people don't critically analyze what it is that has led to this little boy going through what he went through at a time that he did because we all know about baby p we all know about victoria columbia all of that that's been going on since the 90s we know these things happen these people exist what are we doing about it and the headlines of boris johnson saying we will find the people who failed this child, the answer is it's years and years and years of austerity and bad government and chronically underfunding a system that was crippled in the first place. And much like a lot of the bar, and I shout out to our criminal barrister colleagues at this stage, because I know how much they're suffering with the same problem, but relying on some good people to prop up a system that needs proper work is never, ever going to be sustainable. And it does lead to mistakes. I just want to say that because it makes me so angry. Uh, Well, and anybody that knows what happened to all the sure start groups under the Blair government as well, will know that that was such a detrimental decision. And I'm not even beginning to talk about politics at the minute. We just we would all just become sour and bitter and twisted right now, wouldn't we? Um, But I think coming back to the comment about what we say on Twitter and how we talk about social workers, you've got to put it in a critical sphere about who's functioning in what system and how. And actually, they're much broader questions than just where were the social workers or are social workers any good? It's much, much more nuanced than that and broader than that. No, let's give them a proper pay packet as well. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary job they do. It's a really difficult job and they have to be up at all hours and they have to protect and support and nurture and far fight. And when they can identify that a family might need supports, there's no money for the supports. You know, CAMS is overloaded. Children who need therapeutic support, where is that coming from right now? You can't get therapists. Yeah, you see, Madeline, you're getting me started now. Sorry, let me move on with my tweet of the week. We'll leave it at there before we, this goes on for another three hours. Mine is from Ellen Crow, 
at Ellen Crow LA, and she says, overheard at Thames Magistrates Court, maybe I'll become a barrister in my next life and earn loads of money. <laughs> then she put dot, 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 who's going to tell them? And it just made me laugh today because I was doing a student session last week and I was banging my family law drum and trying to make as many people at Lincoln's become family barristers as possible. And so many of them came up to me after and said, oh, but I don't, I don't really not want to make any money. <laughs> and it just makes me laugh because first of all, even if you're a majority legal aid barrister, which I am, you make more than you need, trust me. And second of all, if you're becoming a barrister to make money, it's probably something to reflect on. Well, my tweet of the week, forgive me for picking this one, but I hope you'll understand. It's Cyrus's tweet, stepping down from the chair of the FLBA. And he said, after 28 months at the helm, I will chair my final FLBA national committee meeting tonight. And he goes on to say it's been the greatest privilege of his career and to lead during the most challenging time. And I picked that tweet, not only because I obviously know everything that Cyrus has done, but I wanted to use that as a springboard just to shout out to those people who might not know about what people have been doing behind the scenes in the last two years. It's not just Cyrus and me a little bit, but we have people from the Law Society. We have people from Resolution, from the ALC, chairs and vice chairs and other people who work with them who have given up and dedicated an extraordinary amount of time to attend meetings to take back from front lines directly to the president and Lord Justice Baker and Mrs Justice Tice issues that are ongoing and are real and prevalent. They challenge the senior members on behalf of our profession and they have done so giving up hours of their time. At one stage, meetings were twice weekly. There were what were called gold commands where you would go on the phone with legal aid and they would rattle through at the most exceptional speed of all the different issues. It was through those meetings that we had the changes to the way in which domestic violence injunctions could be applied for during COVID. It was through those meetings that they made a decision about managing particular email accounts to ensure priority was given for domestic violence injunctions and that judges were told to do them over the phone. It was through those forums that legal aid was shifted and tweaked so that applications could be made in a faster way. It's through those forums where people have stood up and said well-being is being lost or where we have said that uh, we need to remain working from home because it wasn't safe. And whilst Cyrus, that's his tweet that's led me to say all that, I just think it's really important to know how hard the heads of all of our different associations have been working for the profession at the end of these two remarkable years. So I hope you don't mind me saying that and using this platform. Yeah, I mean, nearly two years later, it's so easy to forget the chaos that ensued in March last year when everything was adjourned en masse because we just didn't have the technological infrastructure to do anything remotely, where everyone is absolutely terrified about going to court and frantically sending emails to judges saying, I don't feel safe coming into court, something needs to be done urgently. And I completely agree with you. We need to shout out the people who've been working behind the scenes tirelessly alongside their day jobs. You know, the heads of these various associations, our solicitors, our barristers who are managing this alongside their very important job of actually supporting clients. So while we've, Maddie and I have barely been keeping our heads above water, just doing our day jobs, all these people have been juggling a million other things to try and represent our interests as well. And I was really moved at the national conference in Manchester when Cyrus was thanked. It was you that thanked him and, and handed him his leaving present. And he was in he's on the verge of tears. And I was on the verge of tears, even though I don't even know Cyrus at all, because it was incredibly moving. And I think that it was really overwhelming in that context to think about how far we've come and how much we've all worked together and how beautiful that is. Yeah, I really want to echo that as well. I, again, don't know Cyrus very well, but I do know how hard he's worked in the last 28 months and how hard you've worked alongside him, Hannah. And it's unthinkable to imagine how different things were 28 months ago versus now and how much better the profession is for that leadership and for that work. So thank you so, so much, Cyrus. We all really, really appreciate it. If there's anyone listening who's not a member of the FLBA, please sign up because it's just a fantastic resource and we use it all the time. And it's so great, even answers tweets and supports you on email and is just there for you all the time so it's just an absolutely fantastic organization to be a part of and we're all really really proud of it and also hannah's about to be the vice chair so it's going to get even better 
about to be the chair. The chair. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you were the vice chair. About to be the chair. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure the tweets will get answered quite so quickly. But <laughs> well, if you need a social media coordinator, honey, you know where we are. Ah, sorted. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much, Hannah. This has been really, really amazing and a real privilege for me, at least. I know how, how busy you are. And again, about to take over the FLBA. So about to be much, much busier. We really, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to Luke as well, who will have to listen to an hour and 50 minutes of us rattling on. <laughs> all the resources that we've mentioned, all the resources that Hannah's mentioned will be in our show notes for you to check out at your leisure so thank you very much Hannah and we'll see you all after Christmas because we're having a little Christmas hiatus to allow Hannah and Luke to go off and have a holiday as well and also before we go it is going to be Luke's 50th birthday very soon so happy birthday Luke we have a present in the pipeline you will get it on your birthday it will be on our social media so do keep an eye out for producer Luke's social media gift that sounds fantastic <laughs>